0: Welcome to the Big Scuba Podcast. This is Jill Heinerth, and I'm excited to sit down for a conversation with Ian and Gemma.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Big Scuba Podcast. Thanks for downloading Gemma, you're on, what number are we up to?
2: We're on episode 17.
1: Awesome. brilliant I believe we're at 17 that's really good but thank you very much for coming back for another go this is the one with your highness, this is Jill a very highness. Good one. Yep.
2: the Canadian diver
1: explorer underwater photographer cl- uh, climbs into icebergs and all sorts of things don't you so uh, she's um, an
2: action lady
1: certainly is and uh, it's an absolutely privilege and a brilliant experience to Talk to Jill and have her on the Big Scuba podcast, really. So, yes. uh, you know, right from the start, let's just say thank you very much to Jill to uh, to join us. Can't wait to share it with you. But before we get down to business, let's just talk about our lovely patrons who help and help keep us afloat and make this all possible. So, thank you very much. Let's say hello first off out the runners to John. Thank you uh, for every month. You know, you you. Contribute and you help support the show. So, uh, thank you. Uh, Matt, again, thank you very much. And also, we've got to say thank you to New and Slopey. Mark, Matt, Ted,
2: and Sue. So they're all contributing yeah. and helping us. Some well. of them
1: were new. Yeah. And some of them were new, weren't they? So, uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. And for everybody who contribute to make it all possible every month. Thank you. So, anything else to share, Gemma? Do we need to share anything else? No, I think we're obviously busy on social media. So, we've got
2: lots of other guests coming up. More exciting stuff.
1: We're we're releasing this for the patrons on World Ocean Day. So, uh, you know, it's a very special thing. We've put, we've also released a video today, a little bit about, a little bit of a story about life under the water life above the water what we use it for for play for work for living and then back under the water for getting you know diving and having fun and all those sorts of lovely things but there's a a message behind it with all these things is that water is life yeah it's in everything and um, it's one of the most we can we can carry on without food for a while but the one thing we can't carry on with is without water and uh you know it affects everybody so really really important week really important day and uh world oceans day is a very important thing for everybody and we should all be taking notice today and it's worth reflecting and remembering why the oceans are important to us yeah so, you know and uh, our guest um is you know she's world renowned and uh you know She's the first one to tell you about the importance of the oceans. So, unless there's anything else, Gemma, do we just oh, crack if on? There, if there's
2: no blue, there's no green. That's another famous line from good. Sylvia L. Oh, good.
1: I like that. I like that. That's a simple. Let's take it. Yeah, very mm-hmm. good. So, anyway, that's enough of us rattling on. So, let's get on with the show. Over to Jill.
2: Jill, highness.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs>
2: Thank you for joining us on the Big Scuba podcast. As a child, you were inspired by Jacques Cousteau's television television series. In fifth grade, uh, you gave a science fair project about mysterious disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. You're a Canadian cave diver, underwater explorer, writer, photographer and filmmaker and you're one of the world's premier underwater explorers and the first person to dive inside an iceberg or iceberg caves. Um, You're a veteran of over 30 years of filming, photography and exploration on projects submerged caves around the world. You've made TV series, consulted on movies, written books and a frequent corporate keynote speaker. You're the first explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, recipient of Canada's prestigious Polar Medal, a very rare award and is a fellow of the International Scuba Divers Hall of Fame. In recognition of your lifetime achievement, you've been awarded the Sir Christopher Umbachi Medal for Exploration from the RCDS and the William B.B. Award for the Explorers Club.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Really good awards
1: there. Uh according to mm-hmm. filmmaker, James Cameron more people have walked on the moon than have ever been to some of the places your highness has uh, gone here right on earth so pretty amazing statement there from uh, james cameron
0: he's a fellow canadian yeah. <laughs> and i did get to take him on his first cave dives and uh, okay. yeah yeah i work with him on the pitch trailer for sanctum um, absolutely wonderful i'd love to work with him some more he's just yeah fantastic he's one of the hardest working people i've ever met really yeah yeah coming from you you know the work that you do as well (laughs) that's
1: quite that's quite a thing
0: you know there was one particular day where we were literally in the water underwater for like eight hours in this shallow place um testing this new camera and shooting some stunts and and uh we surfaced because we needed air and uh we literally like backed our butts up to a, a step where people grabbed our tanks and put threw another one on us and then tossed a piece of pizza to us in the water. <laughs> so I have a picture of a James Cameron like sitting in the water at Jenny Springs. Why <laughs> not? Why not? Yeah. You've got a best
2: selling book called in- to the planet my life as a cave diver it's drawn a claim with the new york times wall street journal and you've written other books as well uh the essentials of cave diving the basics of rebreather diving underwater video side profiles and women underwater
1: yeah and also fellow hi- uh, kayaker and gardener as well the king
0: <laughs> yeah i've got this uh well I would say these days the gardening is my husband, in all honesty, but he's got our condo like full of sprouting vegetables everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's good. So yeah, he, I mean, he got us through the winter with all fresh greens constantly, but now he's he's gone on steroids and uh, right. has every intention of uh, eating all summer out of our own condo. Is it
1: just your yeah, husband that sings the plants or do you join him in? Because that's meant to make your plants grow. Yeah,
0: he is fully responsible for the uh, indoor <laughs> garden these days. I'm, I mean, traditionally, I've been traveling so much that that I I couldn't even take care of plants. But uh, now all of a sudden I'm home, so yes. <laughs> I guess I What's this I like about them?
1: you um, uh, going in the river and swimming every day?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I used to live in uh, in North Florida, right, by Ginny Springs, which is one of the most uh, popular uh, cave diving sites in the world, actually. I used to live right, you know, two miles from my doorstep to jumping in the water. Yeah. So I'd ride my bike in the morning and, and swim in, in the spring and in the Santa Fe River. And it's got very high flow in the Santa Fe River, so you can kind of do the, the swimming treadmill deal. Um, yeah see the occasional alligator from now now and
1: then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. That's got to make you swim a bit faster.
0: Yeah, I've seen alligators and, uh, and beaver, I- interestingly. Um, oh, that's something you think them. of when you yeah. think of Florida. Yeah. But now uh, I live on the Mississippi River. Not the Mississippi River that you know of from the U.S., a different one up here in right. Canada. Um, so right now I think the water temperature, oof, if it's four degrees, that'd probably be about right but soon uh, I'll, I'll i'll let it get a little a bit, bit warm, warm for you isn't it? really four degrees yeah i get a bit warm yeah <laughs> well for for swimming swimming i'll wait for it to get a bit warmer uh, yeah, my first dive actually my very first open water dive it was four yeah
2: so whereabouts are you actually based in canada at the moment
0: yeah, I'm uh, just south of Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa is our nation's capital in, uh, in Ontario. So, you know, I, I have lots of diving nearby. I, I actually have ten kilometers of cave passages. We have the. Uh, I'm just an hour from the Great Lakes and, and St. Lawrence Seaway shipwrecks, and um, and then I live right on this river as well. So, yeah, lots amazing. to do. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, how are you filling your time? While we're in lockdown, are you able to do any diving or is it complete
0: no-no? Well, no. I mean, you know, I honestly, I do a lot of solo diving usually, but I just don't feel like it's right to Mm. go diving right now. Um, I mean, I don't, even just getting in the car and going someplace doesn't feel right right now because we just don't want to overwhelm the emergency system if something happens. So, Mm. Um, plus, you know, a lot of parks and things are closed, and boat ramps. I I could certainly surreptitiously go diving, but it just doesn't seem.
2: Right. No, it's doing the right thing, isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah. So soon, you know. But in in the meantime, I've been writing and doing new proposals. Every project I've had for the year has just about uh, gone away. I've got a couple still hanging there that I'm keeping my fingers crossed on. But so yeah, so I'm writing and researching. I've fixed all my gear nine ways till Sunday redoing some of my books right now and bringing them up to date so so I've been busy I mean I I was sort of paralyzed by the news cycle like everybody else but Mm. mm.
2: so how did you get into your scuba journey how old were you and did anybody inspire you to kind of jump in the water
0: Mm. you know I wanted to dive from my youngest days and uh yet there wasn't anyone in my family or sphere of awareness that we're divers. Uh, And when I suggested it to my family, they're like, I don't think people dive in Canada. It's too cold. (laughs) So I guess it was, you know, journey delayed (laughs) at that point. When I was 16, I had a chance to use some scuba gear in a pool. I was a lifeguard and boom i was just like oh yeah this reignited the desire i've got to do this mm-hmm. uh, but it was you know more than 10 years later before i actually got certified because it was really you know financial matter i you know i had to get myself through university save some money and and i was so certain about wanting to dive that i bought all of my equipment before my open water That's a faith. qualification dives yeah yeah. So
1: even before you've done a dry dive,
0: anything like that, before you you get. Uh so I was in the middle of the pool sessions when I went to the dive shop and said I'm ready, you know, sign me up dry suit BC wow. rig. I've saved all this money. <laughs> and here's the funny part. I I said to the uh the shop owner, I said, "So I've I've picked out the regulator I want, so I'll need the schematics for it." And he's like, "What?" I said, "I'll need the parts diagram for the regulator and uh he says, no, you, you know, we service these things because we are qualified life support service technicians. And I said, well, I don't mean to be offensive, but I've been using your rental stuff in the pool for a couple of weeks now. And I don't think you're taking very good care of it. So uh, well, you said that to him. I did. Oh, yeah. yes. I was, every time we jumped in the pool, stuff's leaking, stuff's failing. And so uh, that's I already had decided, no, I need my <laughs> own stuff that works and I'll fix it myself for you though really saying that
1: well at least you know, you're, yeah, you
2: know you're safe then don't
1: you <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know we have a broad spectrum of listeners from uh, non-divers right through to really technical as well mm-hmm. uh, that's really great um for somebody who is on the uh beginning side and they're kind of nervous about it what would you say to someone who is in that sort of they kind of tip the, the toe into the water and mm-hmm. watch her rather dive into them mm-hmm. what what sort of message
0: would you say to well first i'd say be scared that's good there's nothing wrong with that and you know this is a life support sport and um you're going into you know you can't breathe water right? <laughs> so yeah. so you have to you know take your training seriously but it's not hard um and once you cross that threshold of fear it's going to very quickly turn into exhilaration just like jumping on a roller coaster so uh you know trust in the process with with your instructor and then and then also um stop fighting it i think you'll you'll probably agree that when you start diving you're sort of just struggling with everything and you can't get the ergonomics right and you can't it just seems so foreign and then and then Suddenly, one moment you just stop fighting it, and your buoyancy is beautiful, and you're relaxed in this new environment, and you kind of trust in the the gear and the process and everything else, and and then it's just magic. All of yeah, a sudden, it yeah, it's it a Yeah, when you learn in the UK or Canada, it prepares you really for anything because the conditions aren't easy. It's your conditions the same. Huh? Yeah. And and you know, um, just from helping in in classes and and assisting divers in their in their early training, that that moment when they do kind of let go and 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 have that revelation, or or the moment they get certified, there's nothing like it. You know, no. you realize no. you've given someone a ticket to a brand new world, and that yeah yeah. yeah. So at I some really. point down the road, Ian, you'll have people coming up to you saying, "Oh, you trained my grandmother." <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few of those. I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so I've got one question
1: for you though, which comes to mind after watching one of your vid on your head talk. Mm-hmm. Astronaut. What happened? You want to be an astronaut?
0: <laughs> well, I grew up in the '60s. The way and, uh, Watching, you know, the Apollo missions and men driving around on the surface of the moon. And I remember saying to mom you know, I want to be an astronaut. And she sat me down and she said, Well dear like there's this Apollo thing but we we don't have a Canadian space program and well there are no women astronauts <laughs> so, so um, my parents you know encouraged me to do and chase my dreams and do anything they, they told That's me good. I could make anything possible um, yeah. but I think that when it came to being an astronaut they thought that was uh <laughs> was going to be a bit of a reach <laughs> Look at where you are now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm an acronym, aquanaut now. They don't yeah. know how that happened either. So,
2: <laughs> What was your first job in the underwater world? Uh,
0: well, see, I used to own an advertising agency in Toronto. And I'm a graphic designer, so I'm an artist. Uh, and when I started diving, I went fast like literally you know one weekend the open water the next weekend I'm in for advance the following weekend I'm like up there diving and on and on till like I, I don't think it was much more than a year before I was an instructor so the, instructing was my my hobby and mm-hmm. uh nights and weekends I was just constantly trying to get out of the office as fast as I could to go to go diving and um uh and then finally decided I wanted to turn my life around and sold the business and thought, well, how am I going to be creative underwater? How can I create a career underwater as an artist? So I sold everything I owned, the business, my stuff, and I moved to the Cayman Islands and uh, worked as an instructor in a small, like, 12-person um, dedicated diver's Resort or twelve room yeah. dedicated divers resort where you know we lived, ate, drank, and dived with the guests every week, kind of like a live aboard on on shore. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that's where I really piled on the hours. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, how many logs dives do you have in your book, so to
0: speak? Yeah. Well, I've I've done over eight thousand dives, so yeah. Are you still? And you still record it? No, I. <laughs> at some okay. point, you kind of you you kind of lose the interest. Now, my my computers, of course, will record them for me. But <laughs> I used to keep detailed notes on every single dive. But when you're doing like in the islands and you're doing like four dives a day, oh, you eventually get uh, you get a little bit lazy. But it's funny you you come around full circle later in life and you go. I wish I had kept detailed notes on every dive. Yeah. As you go back to these sites that you haven't been to in 15 or 20 years and yeah. you go, Hmm, how deep was that? Jeez. I wish I'd really, you know, kept a record of how many pounds of lead I needed or, yeah. you know, what the layout of the wreck was like. So I kind of wish I'd kept a record of every one of them.
2: Tech diving. Mm-hmm. What, what stage did you actually go down like the rebreather route?
0: Uh, so uh, we were doing a little bit of, of, sort of surreptitious tech diving in 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 canada i mean there wasn't you know tech diving infrastructure in the early days um and i got into rebreathers uh when i met uh dr bill stone in the mid 90s and uh, so pretty early in the in the rebreather bandwagon so when i got my first rebreather there was no training class and uh, was it? yeah yeah what brand was it what uh the it? cislunar mark 5p <laughs> Yeah, there were only ever, uh, I think about 80 of those ever made. Uh, most of them ended up in the hands of different militaries around around the world. So only a few civilians even ever had them. Um, and so we had to teach ourselves <laughs> how to use them. Uh, But that probably set me up really well. I mean, for years, my rebreather dives were always, you know, guinea pig type dives where you never expected everything to go well. And and, uh, having that attitude for rebreathers is probably a good thing. You know, these days they're quite reliable. And so people can go hundreds of dives before they scare themselves. (laughs) Yeah, I, I... spoke to the only other people who <laughs> who had experience on on the rig like so you richard Pyle from hawaii was really handy he's he's one of the um, world's most prominent ichthyologists finding new fish in the twilight zone you know for 400 feet or so deep um and so you know we reached out to rich i i spoke a lot on the phone to bill who designed the rebreather um but there was a lot of experimentation it's like well how long will the battery last uh and then we did a lot of things that were dumb in retrospect but yeah. um but that's how you figure things
1: out with you as well
0: oh yeah always yes. always yeah. but but even in the in the beginning um we were all cave divers and so We thought, well, actually, you know, diving the rebreather in the cave is probably the safest place, we reasoned, because there you are with an overhead environment and you must solve your problems um, without going to the surface because going up and reducing partial pressure is one of the most dangerous things you can do when you're learning your rebreather. So we thought, oh, we'll do all of our training and practice in caves, you know? Um, And so it seemed logical at the time, but now, you know, we would never... We would never train someone on a rebreather in a cave, right? <laughs> um, so over the years, I've continued to be, you know, a test pilot and assisted in the development of many different rebreathers and and uh, and now there's a very you know different approach that we take to this uh manned human testing really there obviously has to be third-party independent testing that does not involve humans first (laughs) and then there has to be a very strategic approach to uh, to testing once you risk you know putting a human in the loop
1: Mm. Well, that, um, that video you you made was in the late 90s with the guy who did the test on that's quite interesting. interesting yeah we yeah. changed the uh, partial pressures and yeah.
0: That. yeah yeah i mean it, so don't try that at home i mean if you watch the video it's about hypoxia so about yeah. the reduction of oxygen to the point of making someone pass out and and in the early stages of figuring out how to train people on rebreathers, we thought we wanted to know what that felt like. And if we detected hypoxia coming on, um, could we train ourselves to bail out to open circuit? And what we learned is that you can't (laughs) (laughs) because it happens kind of so slowly that it erodes your, not just your your brain 's ability to recognize the issue, but your motor control to take action and bail yeah. out, so it was a valuable lesson in that uh, in that regard. but if you 'll watch the video, you'll, you'll realize that we very nearly could have killed each other <laughs> divide, divide. yeah yeah <laughs> uh, boy, so uh, those are the kinds of things we did in. In the early days, things that I would say don't ever teach someone in this way.
1: <laughs> right? Do you do
0: any other types of
1: like diving, snorkeling? You know, do you do the, any of that on holiday or free diving? Absolutely.
0: I just want to be in the water. I mean, people. You know, people will often say to me, you know, oh, you don't want to dive with me? I'm just a like a single tank diver or whatever. And I'm like, no, I just want to be in the You're water. Pisces by any chance? Right? What's that? Are you Pisces by any chance or Aquarius? No, I'm a Capricorn. I'm a stubborn old goat. <laughs>
2: You go, you're going to get
0: in the water, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, swimming, free diving, you know, paddling, whatever. Anything that gets me wet, I'm quite happy doing.
1: <laughs> so how did you get into cave done? You know, what, mm-hmm. what really sort of hit home about why you want to get down there?
0: Uh, well, I've always liked um, caves. So dry caving, you know, uh, and just crawling through cracks and crevices in the, in the Niagara Escarpment here in Canada. Um, I, I did that as a kid so on my open water weekend <laughs> my instructor took us into a cavern really? <laughs> yeah that's not where you would normally do an open water dive but um and some people will say oh well it's a really safe one it only had a little swim through before you could get to the surface And like did yeah you it's see through cool. it or was it actually proper like cavern you know? no it was a proper cavern but okay. um yeah so um not exactly a place for an open water dive, but it did come on kids, come in. Everything will be fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But well, no, you could swim in through this little tunnel and then you can surface inside a a cave that, that you could get to the the surface. in. um, and so I I was like, Oh wow, this is incredible. And, and so that set the hook. And then when I lived in the Cayman islands, I started poking around in the, uh, in the limestone looking for, looking for caves and actually found a, uh, water-filled cave and started exploring it and that's when my colleague at work said you need to get trained in this I'm like trained in what and he said cave diving there's training in cave diving like I had no idea (laughs) so (laughs) yeah so that that's how it started.
2: Amazing. So obviously Antarctica you ended up in one of the most extreme parts of our planet um what made you decide to find an iceberg to (laughs) <laughs>
0: well, my colleague Wes Giles and I wanted to do a project in Antarctica. We both just wanted to go there basically, uh, but we were both really fascinated with Ernest Shackleton, and we'd passed back and forth all of all of the books on Shackleton and Mawson and and wild and and uh so we thought at first that we would pitch a project to National Geographic to Um, following Shackleton's uh, footsteps to go from New Zealand yeah to to Antarctica and so I literally wrote an entire pitch and a script and everything for a film about following in Shackleton's footsteps and then we started paying attention to you know the Antarctic landscape and we saw that there were these massive cracks developing in the Ross Ice Shelf and that Scientists were predicting that, that this very large iceberg was going to calf away from the Ross Ice Shelf, a place where um, Little America, a U.S. base may have been you know, located. Mm-hmm. So uh, we thought, hmm, uh, let's, let's watch this. And literally the night before our pitch, it broke away and became the largest moving object on the planet, the largest iceberg in recorded history. And we theorized that there would be cracks, crevices, and caves inside this massive old piece of ice um, because we watched the cracks and crevices develop and enlarge yeah. you know, over time. And um, so we, we pitched it without really even knowing if there were iceberg caves <laughs> and, then, and then went there and did find and explore them.
2: Had anybody else sort of had this idea before? we, the very first um, to do it?
0: Yeah, we were the first. I mean, when we went and pitched it, uh, Nat Geo was like, "What? There's caves <laughs> of icebergs?" And we're like, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> and it was, you know, a guess. <laughs> yeah,
2: because well, I guess you see ice is solid and it's yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Just, it's and I mean, it's it's funny now because there's people doing science on the Greenland ice shelf and starting to dive in some of the moulins and cracks and things, and it's like, yeah, you know, these 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 things are rife with tunnels and cracks and crevices full of water yeah full of science and history (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm.
2: it's an important thing so when you were inside the iceberg was it like bright and white like we you know normal people on top of the water would expect it to be or was it it
0: was it was pretty magical we first found a couple of you know smaller caves and i was just like wow this is just so amazing and the caves would be full of fish and we would see the layers in the ice some of the layers are clear some are white some are full of silt you know and you're looking at time when you're looking Mm. at those layers stacked up but when we went into this one cave ice island cave number four it was the biggest we'd found at the time we swam through this crevice and it just went on and on out of sight into the blackness and we had to turn on lights and we descended down and down and got to about 40 meters deep when we first saw horizontal passages breaking off from where we were. And uh, I I felt like I was on another planet. It was, um, it was so unusual, but, uh, but yeah, we, we had daylight in the doorway, but uh, became a full cave environment of Mm. complete pitch blackness.
2: Incredible. Yeah. And it's obviously moving all the time that you were in it. it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We did uh dive in in one cave that was sort of tripped up on the ice or on the seafloor so the ice had, had um caught and then and then lodged and so we were actually able to swim under on um, that one as well so that one wasn't moving but mm-hmm. but yeah it's kind of weird when you're diving some of these ice islands uh because you don't feel like you and the cave are moving but when you get back out of the water and the the captain tells you how far the boats you know drifted just while it's been anchored to the iceberg you're kind of like ooh, that's really weird yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had some scares. I mean, the, the one of the dives, uh, Paul and I were inside the iceberg when um, the doorway basically calved and, and um, closed the entrance that we'd gone into. Um, and then as time progressed on the project, we were getting more and more strong currents, um, you know, caused by... Uh, the cycle of the moon that we were getting into, yeah. and so on that particular dive you're speaking of, we were we were trapped inside the iceberg, unable to make our way out, and turned a, a one hour dive into a three hour fight for our lives. And so we, on that case, we were clambering along the seafloor, pulling ourselves along underneath the iceberg when we finally reached a crevice that led back to daylight. But there was so much current streaming vertically down the ice face that it was Pinning us down, and the only way for us to get up at the face of ice was to stick our fingers in these holes, these burrows that these small fish had been living in, and sort of pull ourselves up until we could free ourselves from the current. That you know, the down currents were were quite something, and that that's because this, you know, freshwater ice is melting into salt water, and you're getting this roiling mix of, of mm-hmm. salt and fresh, and temperature variations that create these strange currents. You don't want to. Overbreathe a, a rebreather because you can create a carbon dioxide buildup but the rebreather is a much safer choice in fact when i pitched the project um you have to get a permit to go to antarctica a scientific permit from a nation yes. it's part of the treaty and uh, the u.s declined our our request for a permit really? i told them we were going to use rebreathers and i wrote the sops for the project and they said sorry we don't think rebreathers are safe and i said well I have experience on open circuit under the ice, and what we're going to do is not safe on open circuit. And that choice um, really saved, saved my life, I, 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 or, you know, or I wouldn't have been able to do the dives. <laughs> well, you're, you're diving on uh, in water that's minus 1.8, so with open circuit scuba, it's really easy to get a free flow yeah. because you're hyper-chilling the first stage if you're breathing and inflating a wing and inflating the dry suit at the same time, there might be too much velocity going through the first stage and it hyper chills the metal parts inside. And then ice crystals will build up between like the piston and the seat, depending on the, type of the regulator. And you get the regulator free flowing. Yep. And then you have a potential massive gas loss. The rebreather only uses very small injections of the oxygen that your body has metabolized. And so you don't have a risk of free flow. Plus, The rebreather um, in the carbon dioxide absorbent actually creates an exothermic reaction. So it it creates moisture and heat. So Mm -hmm. you're a little bit warmer on the rebreather. So the rebreather buys us range, like time, basically. And it also means that at a depth like at 40 meters, I'm not using gas any faster than i am in one meter of water yeah i mean i, I was at max physical <laughs> workout pulling myself along trying to get out
1: how do you get on with the sheer coldness around your head
0: uh so i often wear either like a nine millimeter hood i have a, a santi nine millimeter hood that has a skirt on it because your neck is as important as your head yeah. um or or you can wear two hoods you some people will just stack them up, which is fine too, and that to me is the most important <laughs> part yeah. of equipment. If I have a thick hood, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, but you're right; you know your skin is still exposed, and um, it's certainly shocking at first. You do adapt pretty quickly to yeah. cold environments. Um, you know, physiologically, your 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 body changes and starts to utilize brown fat um, effectively. Pretty quick so um i find that you know a week into a, a project in the polar regions I'm, I'm a lot happier than the very first dive the first dive i'm like oh god you know? yeah. <laughs> here we are again <laughs> minus 1.8 yeah it's funny um four it seems like so much warmer <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing like when you get down there that those last few degrees make a big difference um, no, it's yeah. yeah
2: christine zanato in the bahamas um you've dived with her is that right mm-hmm. in abaco in the bahamas yeah
0: yeah yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes. yeah but what was it like in those caves compared to say the iceberg and
0: Oh well, the caves in in Abaco in the Bahamas are some of the most beautiful caves in the world. I've done a lot of projects there over the years. So boy, I've been going to the caves there for 26 years <laughs> in the Bahamas. Um, so there's still endless exploration opportunities all over the Bahamas, and and these caves are highly decorated with speleothems, stalactites, stalagmites, crystal formations. Um, so really, really beautiful. Yeah.
2: Mm. It's amazing because I think a lot of people's perception is caves are dark, small spaces, yeah. and it would just like scare so many people.
0: Mm. Yeah, these caves. Well, although you have to bring all your own light, um, it's like swimming through a crystal chandelier. They're so mm. beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. some of the colors, awesome.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 So just talking about being scared, obviously mm-hmm. some people might say, no, I'm never going in a dark space. Is no. there anything that scares you outside of the underwater world?
0: Uh driving, maybe. Um, <laughs> 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 so um, y- yeah, I, like I, sure, I'm scared every time I go diving. I'm the first to admit that. Um, yeah. My job is to... Being scared means I care about risk. It means I care about coming home with my husband. Um, but, but being scared also allows me to ask myself, well, what is it that scares me today? What could possibly kill me? And so before I go underwater, I can make that list and go, all right, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen. And I have the right equipment. I have the right team. I have practiced. I know how to deal with these emergencies. Yeah, okay. I don't have to be scared anymore and I can get yeah. in the water stressful and emotional free, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, being scared is okay. That's good. Well, that's the ultimate rule of survivors. <laughs> you have to learn how to spend all your money, go to the end of the world, and then, you know, look at the water or the team or the equipment and go, oh, maybe not today. Um, or you have to be willing to get in the water, you know, having spent, your life's savings to go someplace yeah. and then you get in the water and you go oh something's not right I better get out um, so you have to be able to abort whether you're within that hair's breadth of what you perceive to be success or the job or within reach of the treasure or whatever you have to say no. Yeah.
2: How does it feel when you're entering a new cave that no one probably has ever touched before?
0: Uh, just the pinnacle of of excitement, and you actually have to temper it a little bit because in your mind you're going, Oh, <laughs> <We> go <here. laughs> and then just like you have to keep the negative emotions out, you have to keep those distractions made too. It's like, okay, step aside, get to the job at hand, let's just lay this line and map it. <laughs> we'll <laughs> celebrate. we'll tea and metals after the dive. <laughs>
2: yeah, must be an incredible, you know, just a feeling of not, you know, things well, It's like stepping on the moon, I guess, isn't it? it Know, but
0: yeah. yeah, it really is and for me um, as an artist it's all about making the images and bringing them back so I don't just want to go there for myself I want to bring back the images and the information whatever a scientist needs um, to, sh- to share it because you know I can go on the most amazing expedition in the world but when I come back to the real world nobody like, really really <laughs> wants to hear about it they're like oh how was your trip dear? Right. <laughs> but if i have the images to show them then usually they're gobsmacked you normally see your
1: husband down and say right and
0: i'm going to watch
1: about six hours of video of here's me in the case
0: well you know there are a lot of things that i've done a lot of projects that i've been on and robert's never seen a single image or clipping from from what i've done like because i come home and he's bursting with i haven't seen you in a month let me tell you what's been going on here <laughs> and we just go back to life so uh it's it's quite funny but years down the road he'll go that's a cool picture you know when did he take that volcano he's like what (laughs) does your husband die uh he is certified but it's not his thing so i did train him and he's got maybe 20 dives in his logbook but uh he's not a man of the water uh so he likes to su- support you know what i what i do uh, uh and uh, he'd, he'd prefer being being home so do you take him for the odd dive here and there when you are home no i always offer but i don't think he'll ever go <laughs> underwater again he, he's got a, a nice uh kayak now and so he'll often accompany me in with his kayak while i go diving yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: that you can do these things together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. oh yeah yeah we do a lot together just not the underwater part
1: <laughs> okay. i've could loads of different uh caves where's your favorite would you say where's the one that you go uh, going back there do you have one
0: hey you know i'd love to go back to some of the caves in bermuda it's very hard to get a permit to dive there it has to be a scientific expedition and i'd i'd love to go back and do some more exploration there that the caves are stunning yeah. and Bermuda's just a great place to to be so yeah I wouldn't mind going there but yeah I've got a endless list of destinations yet to go to. What Rex? you ever thought about
1: that? You know some people it yeah. seems to be from the what about wrecks? Would you, you know,
0: do they? Use oh, I do a lot of wreck diving, actually. I just, I just like you say, I'm just not as known for that. But, but yeah, growing up in the Great Lakes, it was all wreck diving here. We're the Great Lakes, we have 6,000 um, shipwrecks, and a lot of them, you know, 200 year old, really intact um, boats on the bottom of the freshwater Great Lakes. Um, so I do a lot of that, um, as well as uh, Newfoundland, truck, all, all kinds of places. But yeah, capes are. Particularly special to me and and intriguing to me. I, I love the history of 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 wrecks. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know why. It might be something very primal, you know, back to the womb sort of experience of cave diving, swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. You know that I I feel differently when I'm in a cave. Yeah, but, but like I said before, you just get me underwater and I'm happy. No <laughs> <laughs> that way. Reef wreck cave. Yeah freshwater yeah. lake with a single crayfish I'm happy <laughs> fair enough yeah
2: do you do any much solo diving on your own
0: I do a lot of solo diving uh and I, you know it's a calculated risk I know some people would just kind of go what <laughs> but um uh you have to understand that that when you're at a I don't mean this to sound arrogant in any way but when you're at a higher level of of, of diving experience that uh, that Diving solo is it's really safer. Like, if, if I'm taking somebody with me, I may I may be distracted because I'm having to spend a certain amount of my brain making sure they're okay, and I can yeah. never turn off that instructor <laughs> instinct when I'm with someone else. Um, and so, when I'm on my own, I can be completely focused. Um, I'm, I'm very conservative, and um, and I also don't live in close proximity to people. Um, that the dive at the same level and have the same time availability that I do. So solo diving makes sense. And then there's also a lot of places that I go where I just wouldn't want to drag another person because I think it increases the risk in that yeah. regard. So I think if you're thoughtful about it, experience, you got the right gear redundancy and, um, and you're conservative that solo diving is completely reasonable.
2: Mm, yeah. Oh, that's good. And we- Obviously, when you're mapping these caves, you use all this different technology and sort of gizmos to map the, the floor. Do you think one day cave diving will be sort of the, the human influence will be less and less because of all this technology advancement? For
0: Well, I, I always think there's a place for the human brain. So I work with um, with a lot of advanced mapping technologies, including an underwater autonomous device that we can set free and it explores the cave on its own i mean it drives itself it knows when to turn around it maps the cave in three dimensions it can decide i'll turn left i'll turn right based on information it's gathering it knows it's very big come back what's that is it very big uh, it's about it's about as big as me actually no um i mean we started th- this this Grew from the Wakulla Mapper that I drove in Wakulla Springs back in '97, you know, Um, but now this is completely artificially intelligent and autonomous, and it's 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 destined for Jupiter's moon Europa to discover um, what is in the liquid ocean beneath the frozen surface um so so that kind of technology is exciting because it will go where i can't go right um but there's no substitute in my mind for putting a human brain in an environment and bringing back the information they didn't want you to get they didn't ask you to go to that planet (laughs) no (laughs) i think my husband might not your territory (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. But I still feel some connection to that because I got to drive that mapper in the 90s and and I've been photographing the developments of of the device over the over the decades. So if it actually gets to Europa I'm I'm going to feel like a little piece of you me is there. too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I also um saw that you've been to Lanzarote and mm-hmm. inside the mount mal- the m- volcano. Mm-hmm. Inside. Mm-hmm lava
0: tube i mean that must have been a bit like being on the moon oh man lanzarote is beautiful to begin with it's it's so different yeah. um there there's a, a show cave called Hamios del agua which is part of the network of of lava tubes that come down the flank of the uh, monte corona volcano and it's really interesting because in order to get into the water in homeos del ego like Further up the flank of the volcano, we use ropes or climb down into the caves and then get into the water. But but at the actual show cave entrance, you literally walk by a ticket booth, you go down mm-hmm. a set of stairs into this beautiful environment that is, you know, there's like whole ceiling skylights, basically, mm-hmm. where the ceiling of the lava tube is collapsed. Um, And then you walk through a dining room, and at that far end of the dining room, there's a little wooden fence, and you have to climb over the wooden fence and down a boulder slope to get to the water. And when you get in the water there, um, you're actually going into this lava tube that descends beneath the seafloor. So um, it's amazing. And because it goes beneath the seafloor, you're influenced by the tidal changes. So Mm -hmm we dive on the right tide cycle so that we don't have um, high flow that's impossible to swim against. Which means that you might be jumping in the water or out of the water at midnight, You know, (laughs) if the tides are on that particular cycle. So there was one dive where I go off for hours into this cave with some scientists and and I'm shooting. And when we came out, it was midnight at a black tide dinner. So we climb up the boulder slope, climb over the fence and then we have to walk through a like formal dinner where there's, you know, oh. silver tea service and champagne in our dry suits and rebreathers. Right? <laughs> and people are like up? That up. You- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's quite fun.
2: It's incredible. And in fact, there was a mountain of sand in
0: this lava tube. Yeah. So imagine, like, the way a lava tube happens is the the lava flow goes down the flank of the volcano, and when it hits the ocean, there's a massive gas explosion because Mm -hmm. of the heat, right? Yeah. Um, And it literally, like, you know, splits the ocean apart. (laughs) You know, the parting of the Red Sea. And the lava flows into the ocean. And... Um, the outer part of that flow cools first from the ocean water the inner part flows lava like a fire hose for a while until it cools down so this lava tube travels um, a great distance and then later like in the 5,000 years since the last um, uh, eruption uh, the seafloor continues to build up from the death of you know animals that have calcareous bodies and whale bones and things like that and so it gets buried Mm. so the lava tube is now under the seafloor so for us we literally swim through this um lava tube i'm trying to remember the penetration distance it was you know it was over kilometer kilometer and a half um and you get to this point where there's one tiny hole in the ceiling of the lava tube and one grain of sand at a time is dripping from the ceiling to the floor in the cave and so above you is the seafloor and then it's dripping down through this hole and it created a mountain of sand that's just like the inside of an egg timer you know so it's and then the mountain of sand was about uh, 25 meters high bright wow. white sand in a black cave so
2: we how did you feel when you saw that it must
0: have been I't anything like it yeah I was totally blown away and that was like I we were expecting our, our plan was to go to the sand mountain and sample um, to see if there was life inside the sand mountain mm. and and uh, it, I was just blown away when I saw it. It was yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah, no, it was incredible. So talking of sand. You've been to the Sahara Desert as well to dive, which seems like completely doesn't make sense. But so <laughs> it's just diving to happen in the driest place on earth.
0: Well, yeah, that was another one of those sort of um, childhood uh, fascinations, and then guesses. Like as a kid, I always wondered. Okay, so there's the Sahara Desert, you know dry, terrible place. Well, but there's palm trees there and little pools like these oases. What are... What is an oasis? Like how, how did the water get there? It doesn't rain there, and, and I remember as a kid learning that it only rained in that part of the Sahara Desert every 25 years. Yeah. So where did the water come from? Well, it turns out the water's from the Nubian Aquifer. Huge, huge fossil aquifer because it's no longer being replenished by rain. Wow. Um, so, and that's beneath Egypt, Libya, Chad, and Sudan. So I kept reading and learning more and following in the pursuit of Alexander the Great and uh, decided to follow in his footsteps across the river to Yeah, because uh, he had consulted with an oracle in um, a small town in Egypt, very close to the uh, Libyan border. And when he consulted with the oracle, he went to this temple, the temple of Jupiter Amun, went inside the temple and into this room closed the door and when he came out he told everybody that he had been declared the first true pharaoh of egypt now in researching this oracle i discovered that the oracle was a well so it was a voice coming really? from a well and so i thought well we need to go there must <laughs> be It an echo. Yeah, i don't know I <laughs> We went to the actual well, and and Phil Short and I um, got there, went inside the temple, there was no one around, and and the whole well was sort of like grated off with bars. Phil's skinny, and he's like, I'm going in, you know, (laughs) climbing gear, he literally like slid through this fence, and then the two of us kind of shimmied down the chimney of the well to find crystal clear blue water at the bottom in in a pile yeah we were in the oracle <laughs> a lot of people can say that mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you're um oh what was
1: that film uh matrix yeah Salt the oracle don't they
0: yeah that's right yeah, that saying. <laughs> yeah who knows we could have gone back in time
1: <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Jill, for joining us. Did you enjoy that, Gemma?
2: Yeah, no, really good. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to episode 18, where we're chatting more to
1: Jill Heine. Yeah, 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 that'd be brilliant. And uh, really looking forward to that episode, so that'd be really good. Uh, So thank you very much, Jill Heine, for joining us on the Big Scoop podcast on this episode. Now, uh, before we go, let's just quickly let you know that we had a new band we featured in this episode, a new band called Lumin, uh, L U M I N E. You'll find them on Facebook, and we knew, we use their new song, Sal, called Adrift. So, if you like their music, look them up. They'll be one of the bands um, that will be playing on our social media, um, along with the other bands that we use Telling Truth, Marigold, Blood Like Honey, and you know, so uh, look them up. See them, look where they are on social media. I believe all our bands are busy now, doing getting ready for they are. Uh, releasing new songs and me- media. So look up, look them up, please do. Or just Start go to that. the
2: website. They're on. We've got a page specifically for the bands,
1: haven't we? We yeah, have. Yeah, go to our Good point. If I remember Gemma, and our website is called www.thebigscubapodcast.com. podcast. Oh, yeah. com okay so that's it for me
2: yeah I think that's everything and we'll be back with Bill in uh, episode 18
1: brilliant let's let's get to it see you then bye bye <laughs> what does it all come down to I've never lost myself out you anxiety around me but should I him? i lost